Thank you everyone for joining us today on the call. Um, I'm Richard Perez, Managing Director and Chief Strategist here at Boston Private. Today we have the good fortune of having two extremely accomplished direct private equity investors who combined have nearly 40 years of experience advising and directing, directly investing on behalf of numerous multi-billion dollar family offices. On the call, we'll discuss direct investing during and coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, best practices in developing a direct investing program, advantages and challenges unique to family offices, and emerging models for family office direct investing. We'll also allow for questions, as Kendall mentioned, from the audience at the end of the session. Um, so why don't we get underway with some brief introductions. First, um, I'm, we're joined by Ward McNally, founder and managing partner of McNally Capital, a firm formed by the McNally family that provides direct investing and merchant banking services to operating companies and family office investors. Ward, why don't you uh, give us a quick snapshot of your background and experience? Great. Thank you, Rich. Uh, also, thanks to Eddie and Bill for inviting me to join today. Uh, always appreciate the, uh, the privilege to work with you guys and collaborate on, on areas in direct family capital. Uh, as, as Rich mentioned, we are a family-owned merchant bank. Um, our, our mission is to harness the financial, human, and intellectual capital of our family office ecosystem, which is over 800 family offices around the world, uh, really to help all of us uh, build value as investors and for our management teams. Uh, we work with families to collectively invest in founder and management-owned companies, uh, helping together uh, bring everyone's collective industry and operating expertise as investors and our capital uh, to access deals uh, and combine all of that into an information advantage during our diligence process, as well as uh, uh, being management's partner under uh, during our investment period. Um, as Rich mentioned, we've been doing this uh, for the last 10 years as McNally Capital when we opened up our doors uh, to uh, families outside of our immediate family uh, to help them uh, make and manage their private equity investments. And today, um, we've advised on, uh, on hundreds of families uh, in all aspects of the direct private capital investment activities. Uh, we've also deployed over $250 million across eight portfolio companies uh, alongside our fam 55 family office investment partners. Um, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ward. Appreciate that. Um, we're also joined by Mark Pinho, founder and managing partner of the St. Victor Group, a private investment platform focused on making longer duration structured corporate investments in partnership with management and family owners. Mark, why don't you give us an overview of your background and experience? Sure. Thanks, Rich. Uh, and, and thanks to everyone over at Boston Private. The, um, my background, uh, not dissimilar to Ward, uh, I've been in the investment management industry for the last 20 years. Um, most recently, I'm, I'm out on my own uh, with the St. Victor Group, really doing what I'd done for the previous 12 years at Soros, um, which was a $30 billion family office, uh, investing on behalf of the Soros family and their related charities. And, and really, the, the theme for the last 14 years of my investment career has been working with flexible capital to find interesting transactions that aren't necessarily easily addressed by traditional capital sources, whether private equity, hedge funds, you know, uh, endowments, et cetera. And, you know, working with those companies, working with those management teams uh, to, to provide financing in those scenarios. So, um, you know, focus a lot on long duration, focus a lot on low leverage assets, with the idea towards using um, earnings growth and compounding to drive returns as opposed to financial engineering. Uh, my, my experience on the family office side, Woodward Soros um, was one of the four deal partners focused on all the liquid investing there for over 12 years. Uh, and we had probably one of the broadest family office mandates out there. We were a global business investing all across the capital structure. Uh, and that was a terrific run uh, with, the, with that group. Thanks, Mark. That's great. Um, I thought we'd get started by, given the unique environment that we're all living through, and talking a more kind of a broader top-down view of the space. Um, Ward and Mark, both of you have had long careers investing through challenging periods in, in direct private equity. For example, the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, the financial crisis in 08-09. Ward, why don't we get started with you? What are some of the lessons learned during those periods that you think are applicable today as we consider investing during and post the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Uh, you know, having, having started the firm um, at McNally Capital in April of 2008, uh, we, we had a bit of a front row seat uh, to, to how families were positioned in the last downturn 
what different families were doing during the Great Recession and, and how uh, those families uh, uh, successfully navigated out of it. And, and this, this crisis is certainly different um, from several, what, what I would say, sort of well-documented macro aspects, so I'm not going to go into those. Uh, however, if you, if you look through the lens of a family office uh, making direct investments, here are a few ob observations I'd, I'd, I'd provide. Um, family offices today have a, have a lot more direct private capital invested than they did back in 2008, also mostly into larger operating companies not in early stage venture uh, deals and, and, and what we all used to think of as, you know, quote unquote club deals, uh, most of which caused significant issues for families back in 2008. Those companies were, uh, were had issues with liquidity, had issues with, uh, with operating uh, issues, and had issues also uh, from a governance perspective as it relates to, to how the uh, families came together and, and, and joined in those club deals. So that that that's that's observation number one. The second thing that we've seen too in talking to families is most families have um, far fewer private equity fund commitments uh, today than they had 11 years ago. Uh, that means that they have fewer um, uh, potential liabilities on capital calls, uh, on funded obligations, things of that nature. There was an awful lot of scrambling uh, in 2008, 2009 just to meet capital calls. Uh, and, and the like, and that that's a very different situation that we've seen um, in in this go around. Uh, third, uh, a significantly less leverage across people's portfolios, and, and greater access to liquidity. We've seen a lot of families reduce their exposure to hedge funds over the years. Um, you've heard a lot less uh, in this environment than you heard in 2008, 2009 around hedge funds uh, throwing up their gates and, and causing. Uh, chaos for uh, the ability for, for for investors to get uh, to to get access to their cash. Uh, so that has that has also created a, a difference um, in, in the overall liquidity profile for for families. And I, and I think last is that you know, over the past 30 years, the private equity sector has certainly outperformed um, most other classes uh, asset classes. And and in a crisis has over the last 30 years shown that it can be a safe haven to, to ride out a storm uh, and, and, and really be in a position to take advantage when we do come out the other end of, of, of any crisis. And so what, what, what does this all mean? I, I, as we look at it um, and as we look at some of these facts in terms of where people are positioning their portfolios today uh, versus looking back at 2008, 2009, uh, it's likely that a family office with this kind of a profile is going to weather the storm better this time around than when compared to 2008, 2009, and, and being better positioned to invest further capital in the space and, and take advantage of certain opportunities that are that are that are now forthcoming, and I think personally will, will continue to be forthcoming over the course of of the next 12 months. And and I think it's the answer to the second part of your question, Richard. Um, you know, as the saying goes, never, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, if, if you are a long-term family office investor and deploying capital into the direct family capital marketplace, uh, here, here are a couple of key lessons that, that might be lessons learned from 08 and 09. Um, remain disciplined, uh, first and foremost. Uh, I think what we saw in 08, a lot of people uh, followed uh, near-term what I would sort of call short duration investment opportunities. There are all sorts of acronyms that were out there from the TAUF plans, TIF, and, and structured equities, and all sorts of things that were thrown um, to family offices by uh, by uh, by different managers, and and many of which were looking to try and accomplish quick wins. Um, and and I think what where people uh, were served well coming out of the last uh, crisis is. Not to wade into uncharted waters. Uh, focus on fundamentals, industries that people had uh, core knowledge and strength, and and stick to your investment thesis. Uh, Mark, you had a unique perspective having sat within Soros investing in private equity within a macro-focused firm. So maybe uh, it'd be it'd be helpful to hear how you think about investing in, in light of the current macroeconomic landscape and also the lessons you learned because you were within a macro shop during kind of a crisis period and you know no two crises crises are the same but but obviously there are things that you can draw upon in terms of your experience 
Absolutely. You know, and I had the benefit, Rich, of starting my career on the buy side during, you know, the, the dot-com crash. So um, definitely different experiences on different platforms, living through what are two different crises. But, you know, a, a lot of the things that there are their takeaways from moments like this are, you know, everyone believes that in a moment of crisis, you know, the buying opportunities are plentiful and obvious. And I think that the biggest takeaway that I've had during my experience, you know, operating through two crises are, that is in fact the case, but you know, unless you have unlimited resources and unlimited talent available to you, trying to get everything is really hard. And so in my mind, what we did a great job of in 0809, and you know, the results kind of showed through that is, you know, working together with the resources we had internally to figure out when it was the right time to play what part of the cycle and in what asset classes. So, you know, for example, you know, going into the crisis in 0809, the private equity team certainly had a lot of portfolio companies at Soros. And what we realized was it was our existing businesses that had the greatest opportunity because we knew who the management teams were, we knew what the opportunity sets were. And so we were very opportunistic and aggressive in trying to build those businesses, whether through M&A or even organically, because you didn't have to go out and meet a new team or look at businesses that were under different states of distress and try to learn something new on the fly while we we're all trying to parse through the, uh, you know, was this the end of the world or not necessarily the end of the world? And then by the same token, it was leveraging, you know, the, the public capabilities as well as our own industry capabilities to figure out holistically as a firm, you know, where should we be spending our time and energy? Because, you know, it's much easier to trade uh, public stocks in, in you know, in, in kind of pick bottoms or pick close to bottoms for longer term holds than it is trying to do so on the private side. You know, every, everyone came out of 0809 on the, in the whole private equity community saying, oh, gosh, you know, next time the crisis rolls around, I just want to be able to buy as many things as I can. Well, well, the reality is, is things don't transact as often as we'd like at the bottom of markets because existing owners know what they have. And so, you know, the things that are being let go are either being let go because existing owners don't want them or can't keep them. So it's the opportunity that's very different. And you have to have the resources and the patience to really wade through that. Uh, in order to make the good buys. And so from my perspective, you know, working with family offices now and, you know, seeing you know, the, the great thing that all family offices have is flexibility. And I think leveraging that flexibility in, in times of crises is really about, you know, keeping patient and making sure that you're not trying to conflate different asset class strategies into kind of one mega strategy, which is, you know, buy everything because it's cheap. Um, well, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And with limited resources, what you really need to do is focus on what is actionable, what can you get done? And honestly, you know, where, where can you as a family or as a fund or as an investor really drive the most value? Because, you know, if, if you want to just gross buy the market, there's a very cheap way to do that because we have the public markets to reference. Uh, if you're going to be a liquid and be dedicating time and resources, the key during moments like this is to figure out where those really juicy spots uh, not only within the market, but for you specifically as a firm or as an individual, um, where you can drive the most wealth creation, because it's going to be different for every every group out there. Um, you know, not everybody is good at everything, and in times of crisis, it's important to kind of really hunker down and figure out what are the things we're good at, and how do we drive value by focusing on those. Makes a lot of sense. Very helpful. Thanks, Mark. Um, Ward, I think we have you back on. Sorry for the tech glitch. Um, uh, we, I know you got cut off as you were going through lessons learned. So if you, if you want to finish up that point uh, or we can move on. Sure. Yeah, no, appreciate that. Sorry about that. It's a, I'm a victim of our new uh, technology that we're all getting used to. Uh, so I, just to, to piggyback off of what Mark said, I think what one, uh, one of the areas that, um, that, that we saw as key lessons learned is, uh, is start to become, you know, increase your level of activity um, with your investments, uh, both with fund managers and with your direct investments, because inherently e each of you as families, as owners of businesses, as operators of businesses, have both the operating experience but also the connectivity uh, to leverage your relationships to support these companies. And while even if, if you may be a passive, non-controlling shareholder, in all likelihood there is something you know or someone that you know that could be helpful to one of your investments. And I think what we're seeing too is a lot of management teams, um, not, not every management team has been through a crisis and been certainly none of us have been through anything like we're going through now. And so your ability to, to, to provide advice and, and, and wise counsel 
um, uh, is, I know, welcomed by a lot of management teams and is something that you may not have thought of in terms of your ability to to um, roll up your sleeves and, and help create value. And, and then I, the last thing I would suggest, too, is um, most of us have a little bit more time than, than we may have had uh, uh, two months ago as we uh, have come through this and spending more time at home, spending more time thinking, learning. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to think about what a future operating environment would look like, uh, both for your investments, but also uh, as it relates to your investment thesis and thinking about uh, what comes next. And I think a lot of the families that we've seen uh, over the last 11 years that have done a great job coming out of the last recession really spent the time to think about uh, their position as uh, as a family within the direct family uh, capital marketplace and how, how can you best position yourself uh, to invest uh, the unallocated capital uh, as, as the M&A markets begin to reopen. So beginning to to really think about those things and, and make sure that uh, your thesis is either sound and if not, then reinvent the thesis uh, so that you're prepared to move forward. That makes sense, Ward. Uh, thank you for that insight. Uh, you know, maybe taking a step away from the current environment and maybe talking more about generally starting a direct investment platform from the family office perspective. Ward, you have a unique perspective kind of with family capital and working with other family offices. Uh, maybe it'd be great if you could talk about some of the advantages and challenges unique to family office who are trying to develop a direct investing effort. Sure. Um, I think you know, there's certainly a, a, a lot of challenges that families faced in, um, in building out a private equity program. Uh, and, and I think the um, uh, for, for those folks who have done it well, uh, and, and this is really coming out of thinking about 2008, 2009, and, and using the last uh, 11 to 12 years as a proxy, uh, those who, who, who have done a great job uh, started with the development of a well-thought-out strategy. How are they going to deploy their capital? How are they going to deploy it differently than they had before? And then following that, really, with building out a world-class team, a team of people who uh, – have experience in making direct investments, uh, have the ability to effectively source diligence and manage, which aren't always inherent in the same person, uh, but have that expertise to be able to uh, to, to, to lend that capability uh, to you and, and, and whatever team you're trying to build. Uh, I think what we saw is a, where challenges people had was, uh, I would refer to it as the, the family that decided to sort of, quote, unquote, dip your toe into the water. Uh, families who did that tended to underhire, uh, tended to not put the time, talent, and treasure necessary against their uh, their allocation in direct, into direct family capital and ended up being understaffed. And, and that, that led to not only immediate issues, but we're now starting to see some of those issues, too, because the capability set of the people on their team uh, to, to weather a storm um, is not something that, that those individuals have. And I, 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 we sort of refer to, to, to this world of uh, direct private capital as not being a spectator sport. You, you really uh, need to be involved on a daily basis um, in order to successfully compete in the marketplace. And that's from everything from being able to uh, sufficiently uh, find a sufficient quality deal flow uh, being the first thing, being able to conduct thorough due diligence, um, and then the constant feeding and nurturing required uh, of you into the uh, management teams of your investments. And, and that requires a, a lot of people uh, and a lot of consideration and is really uh, thought of uh, as a separate business. It's a very different activity set than what a, a traditional family office might have, either one that's focused on investments, which may be focused on more traditional uh, equity, uh, bonds, real estate type investments, less um, more passive investments and, and less direct investments as you might have um, in, in the direct family capital. And I think what we saw in, in 2009 to 2011, 2012 is a lot of families gravitated towards making direct investments in part because they saw their friends getting involved. Uh, they started talking about transactions. Uh, they started 
they started seeing a lot of buzz around getting into um, into the direct family capital arena. And and I think a lot of people have have realized that it's much much harder uh, to do this. And uh, I think have gained respect for a lot of the private equity firms who have uh, over the last 20, 30 years continued to to compound wealth uh, in a way that um, uh, is in excess of the marketplace. And and starting to treat their private equity activities truly as a separate business, as I mentioned before, um, because of the complexities around engaging a team, engaging in the process of doing deals, uh, and, and, and the complexities associated with that versus the complexities of selecting a bond manager or, uh, or a, a long-only manager. In that way, there are just a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges that, that a family faces, and the need to have the right people around the table is, is, uh, is required to be successful. No, that's really helpful, Ward. Thanks. Mark, piggybacking on that, I know you and I have discussed in the past, you know, a family office as they consider building out the platform, just really understanding what they want to be um, and, and how they should think about what's the best way for them to implement. Maybe talk a little bit about what you think um, are things that family offices should consider when they're trying to build out a direct investing platform from scratch. Yeah, no, you know, I think a lot of the, the themes that Ward hit on are kind of universal. And, you know, I'll, I'll pick one that I think, you know, in my mind, is kind of universal across any business and you know, very important when kind of thinking about it from a, a family office platform perspective, which is just, you know, really having the clarity and communication about what it is you do and what you don't do. You know, the, the curse of any family office or any flexible capital pool is you can kind of do anything. And you know, if, if you come to if I come to market and say, hey, I'm a $300 million, you know, lower middle market fund focused on consumer, super easy to to really communicate internally and externally. What is it? What is it we're trying to do? What don't we do? What will we do? Um, if you sit there and say, I have a three or $400 million family office, well, the world is your oyster. However, the ability to get things done is really going to resonate around, you know, what is the focus, you know, towards point. What kind of people and resources do you have to go and kind of execute against different opportunity sets? So just like any business, it's about everybody internally and externally having the clarity and communication around what is it we're doing, what is it we're not doing, which lets you parse through the opportunities. And, you know, I think a lot of people get lost in the shuffle there because, you know, oftentimes folks will say, well, we've got the flexibility to do anything, so we will. Um, you know, even on a platform as large as Soros, we had to figure out what we were good at what we were going to focus our time on and, you know, having that much capital, we have the luxury of saying, uh, I'll, I'll pick kind of an esoteric, you know, concept, which is we've got, we had a lot of traders on the hedge fund side or on the private equity side that, you know, looked at different countries. But if you had a very focused view on Brazil for a period of time, the last thing you wanted to do is, is pick a, a generalist, you know, private equity or hedge fund guy and say, go figure out Brazil and let's be good at it. It was much easier to simply pick an outside manager to say, we have a view on Brazil and express it through an expert versus, you know, trying to develop expertise on the fly, which might be fleeting. So, again, the flexibility that you have in a family office platform can work for you and against you. The key is putting some parameters around, you know, that capital base and that flexibility that says, I'm going to use my flexibility as a positive driver of value by focusing that flexibility across these two or three, you know, um, axes or, you know, paradigms. Uh, and not try to take it all on. And I think that also goes back and ties into kind of what Ward was talking about with, you know, the time treasure and the talent. That also lets you really focus that, right? Which is if if you want to be a direct investor and you say, you know what, my background is X, so we're going to try to, you know, we're going to try to piggyback off that experience. That lets you build a team, that lets you build, you know, outside, you know, connections and networks around an area that you can truly leverage as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone. Um, you know, one of the, you know, given, given my interactions with both the market with a lot of family offices is, as I look at deals, you know, one of the interesting pieces of feedback that I often get is intermediaries get very frustrated with certain family offices because they don't know what they're trying to accomplish. So therefore deal flow stops showing up or really interesting things that should be down the wheelhouse where somebody don't show up because the reality is, the, the market is kind of tired of saying we're trying to put everything against you. So like any business, you know, I go back and I say the, the more clarity, the more communication there is around what is it that we'll do and not do, 
that's a self-reinforcing loop that produces more and more opportunities. And again, I think drives the ability to generate really good returns and to, to get the best kind of capital opportunities out in the market. So to me, that's kind of the first and foremost thing about, you know, it's honestly, it's, that can apply to any investment platform. Uh, I think as family offices think of themselves as LPs, we, we, we force that, um, you know, that kind of view from our GP relationships, which is don't show up and say, I just want, you know, I want you to be an LP and I get to do whatever I want with the money. Our expectation is you wouldn't get a lot of capital. You wouldn't allocate a lot of capital that way. And I think it's justifiable to turn that lens around and say, if I'm showing up to the market and saying, show me, you know, show me everything, uh, it's really hard for the market to take that seriously or to even be good at bringing the opportunity. So, again, bringing that focus to bear, understanding where the skill sets are um, on the existing resources or being, being able to build out resources around the things that you want to be able to do. It all really starts with deciding what, what, our folk, what your focus is going to be and, you know, where you're going to spend your time, your energy, and your resources. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, that resonates, um, you know, with my experience as well, sitting in those types of seats within family offices. I think one of the challenges you both touched on, but on the sourcing side, given the flexibility and the breadth that a family office can have, and they can, the world is your oyster, you can kind of do anything. It also means once you've implemented it, you know, you're open for business for direct investing, you get, uh, you know, a wide array of deals, of deals coming your way, and it's hard to one, source quality deals, and to sift through them. Maybe, Ward, you could touch upon how, how, do you, how do you see the challenge of sourcing quality deals and separating the wheat from the chaff and, uh, and trying to navigate that process? Because it can be overwhelming, particularly within a family that may not have as you know, large a team as some other uh, you know, private equity firms would have. Sure. Yeah, I'll piggyback on what, what Mark said. He's, he's spot on in terms of, uh, of one of the big challenges. And and if you take that uh, uh, to the next level down, I think that one of the things that um, that a lot of families will say to us is, "I'm very selective. I'm very picky." I well, okay, well, that's great. How how many deals do you do out of how many uh, deals that fit your criteria? What what's the, sort of what's your your batting average? <laughs> a lot of people will say, "Well, I, I, we're very picky. We, we do one out of every ten deals." And I look at them and I'd say, well, that's great because the private equity firms that you're invested in do one out of 100, maybe 200 uh, that meets their criteria set. So that, I think, is a, is a myth that's in the marketplace that a lot of families think that they are very selective. Uh, but the reality is the people that they're competing against in the private equity sponsors and, and, and some of the larger families um, have huge teams uh, to evaluate transactions. And, and I think... Um, when you dig into to two aspects of that, one, I would say, uh, piggybacking off of what Mark said around what is it that you really want to be focused on? And I think what we've seen a lot of families uh, struggle with are, are two areas. One is what I would suggest is sort of internal. And, and by that, I mean uh, they've had a challenge getting buy-in from all the stakeholders internally. And that could be family members, but then also uh, the deal teams themselves, and coming together and really understanding what is it that we're looking for and being on the same page. Because the, the family members tend to want to have utmost flexibility, as Mark mentioned, where the deal team, if they're, if they're worth their, their weight in gold, they're used to being more disciplined. They're used to having the thesis. They're used to they're coming out of an institutional environment. Uh, they're used to talking to intermediaries in a very specific way. And, and also uh, being able to provide appropriate feedback so that they can get higher quality, more appropriate deal flow as time goes on and, and create that, um, that, that future capability set. So what we've seen is a lot of families just unable to get together and say, do we want to look at small deals? Do we want to look at co-investments? Do we want to look at early stage? Do we want to look at distress? Um, and it's really the excitement of any deals coming across the transom uh, are exciting to family members. And that leads to not only challenges of sourcing, but also challenges of actually making the investment decision. And so part of what, what we see happen is that families need to get tight around the strategy for many reasons, not just overtly looking to the market, but internally being able to respond and react in an institutional way. Having a true investment committee made up of appropriate stakeholders having the proper communication that families need to have internally so that when the opportunity comes up to actually make a decision uh, that 
there's a process, and that process is followed, and, and it's appropriate. No different, as I think Mark alluded to, than what your expectation would be of a private equity fund that you made a commitment to. You're expecting them to have that process. Therefore, you should have the same process. And then secondarily are um, nuances. We, we've seen families that, that simply um, that they, they have a hard time articulating things that bother them about companies. And it could be as esoteric as a company that has a union. It could be as simple as, well, that company ended up being more than a hundred mile radius out from my house. And I really don't want to drive that far to go visit a company. Um, it could be nuances within certain operating metrics that they believe that certain companies ought to have a greater than 10% EBITDA margin. And, and, uh, and sometimes they have a hard time articulating that because it may have been ingrained in how they ran their business or how they think about things. But articulating that, getting that, those types of things on paper help create that strategy and help create the ability to, to, to uh, communicate externally to the marketplace what they're looking for. And that, the last thing I'd say is the communication part is um, families have spent a lifetime trying to stay below the radar screen and not be overt and not be transparent and communicative uh, because they've wanted to be, they've wanted to, the, the cloak of secrecy and confidentiality, when in fact, if you want to increase your sourcing uh, in a disciplined way and you want to be able to, um, to effectively deploy capital in the direct private capital space, you have to be transparent with the outside world about who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, what you bring to the table that's going to be different from someone else. And that's a big leap for a lot of families. Some families can't overcome that and others uh, look at that and say, okay, I'm comfortable having a, a website. I'm comfortable putting my team out there. I'm comfortable putting my family out there uh, because uh, that, that, is a, a, that is a leap of faith that a lot of families um, have challenges overcoming. And in order to, uh, to, to get your team and get the outside world thinking of you as a legitimate uh, source of capital, uh, you need to do some of those things. It makes a lot of sense for it. <clears throat> I wanted to touch on one of the parts that you were talking about, which was the, the, the sponsors, the private equity firms, who not only have deep teams, but obviously raise a tremendous amount of capital. And I think one of the questions and concerns that you know, I hear from families, and certainly in my seat, I've, I've, I've had concerns, is the quality of the deals that you're getting, is it a crowded space? How are valuations? You know, this environment might change that. But Mark, maybe talk about um, the amount of capital that's been raised in private equity how does that affect, one, the quality of deals that you get to see and families are seeing? And two, does that cause you to start fishing in areas where maybe it's, it's, it's less populated, whether it's going down market or certain industries? How, how do you think about that, given the dynamic in, in terms of assets in the space? Yeah, no, the, um, couple, a couple of different prongs to go down there. So first, I'll, I'll start by just addressing the biggest picture, which is you know, the, the amount of capital in the markets now, there, there's really no space to swim that's not crowded in the pool. So um, I, I think it's one of these things, you know, it's the kind of the European beach analogy. Uh, if, if you don't like people, you're probably not making it into the water here. So <laughs> just that's something we all need to accept yeah. and understand. Yeah. And, then, and then, look, I think, you know, from a deal quality perspective, I, I, this is the reality of the world right now is, you know, for whatever macro reasons, the demographics, the you know where we are, are you know the U.S. specifically um, as you know this this massive attractor of foreign capital and domestic capital. You know the the reality is is that good businesses are going to start here, good businesses are going to flourish here, but the competition to invest in those businesses is going to remain extreme, right? It's it's just the reality of the world that we all have to accept. And so as I think about the you know how does that change your strategy or tactics? It really just goes back to what are the things you want to do, and then how do you differentiate differentiate yourself, right? This is, you know, capital is a product, and you are a product as an investor. And at, at certain points in time, you need to understand the audience that you need to be focused on in order to get, you know, a deal done. And so th this is the part where being a family office or having the ability to, to be more flexible capital actually benefits you, right? Because at the end of the day. Our pension systems, our family offices, our individuals, we've all given money to all these alternative managers, just as like we put money in the markets, to, to, to go out there and be invested, right? We're not paying people uh, as an LP to say, hey, just sit on this capital and do something episodic if that's what you think. Our goal is to say, okay, 
we trust you to go make the best kind of return you can for this period of time. It's why we focus on vintages. It's why we um, think about benchmarking. It's why we think about absolute versus benchmarking. So at the at the end of the day, you know, no one can complain about you know the opportunity sets changing. Um, I've got a lot of friends where I live here in New York that I'll talk to that are you know private equity folks that were doing stuff in the 80s, and you know I'll, if the mindset always starts with like, oh my God, you guys had it so great, you only you could lever things up 96% and only put in 4% equity, and you know it always comes back to the same comment, which is like it was so competitive, it was so hard to get deals, and you know some things worked, some things didn't. So I actually view it as you know Ward Ward I think said this before, and I think it's exactly right. This is a full contact sport. And it has been for a very long time. Yeah. So then you've got to pivot to say, how do you get in front of the good deals and how do you differentiate yourself? Well, here's where having that flexibility you know, can be helpful because you know, at the end of the day, as an asset manager, you've got your hurdle in place. You've got, to, you've got to make a certain return. That generally means that if you're buying larger assets or doing things, you're going to have to use leverage. And that precludes you from being involved in certain asset classes. So I know my own personal focus you know, since I've left Soros has been um, I do prefer playing where it's harder to deploy capital, not because there's a lack of capital, but because I think it's a different constituent uh, of, of who you're playing with. So deals that are harder to leverage, deals that will take a little bit longer to realize, those aren't things that fit well into the generic asset management class. So um, can you differentiate yourself more there? Yes. Is it less competitive? I'm not sure that's the right answer, but you know, the, the key becomes being able to look at management teams, being able to look at owners and say, I can be the right partner for you, and here's why. And I can tell you, it really resonates with a management team when you understand their business well enough to say, if a traditional asset manager or an investor comes in here and says, you know, can you get us out in four years? What does it look like? If your typical, you know, investment horizon as a as a manager is, I'm focused on five to eight year returns because, you know, maybe I'm in a, a part of the market or or an industry that doesn't let me get two to three year returns back. You're deploying new capital for longer tailed returns. Well, that's a place where if you have duration flexibility, you can play, uh, and it, it, maybe it's a little less competitive. And by less competitive, I mean maybe you can achieve better return rates than what gets priced down by a broader market. Um, but again, it's all about positioning. It's all about understanding the what are we good at, what are we telling people, and how do we get ourselves positioned to partner with the best businesses, the best management teams, et cetera. And, and that's really about putting yourself out there and then being willing to execute when you find those things. Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think Ward's right, you know, it, it's the batting average or, you know, how many, how many balls you're swinging at or whatever the right analogy is for that piece of it. You know, when you get a, when you get a fastball down the middle and you don't swing, you, you, tend, you tend to not get fastballs down the middle all that often. So <laughs> a lot of this is about building the process, building the capabilities, so that you can generate those kind of opportunities that fit you well, um, and then when you get that pitch, you can swing at it. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I'll, I'll piggyback off that last point and, and go to you, Ward. In terms of execution, we talked about you know, families have often evolved in terms of how they've executed on deals, and and, and you know, it may start with co-investing with their private equity partners, um, you know, spanning to club deals, and also to you know, doing direct deals solely on their own. And, and anything in between. You've had, you and your firm have evolved as well over time. Um, there's the club deal structure, this committed club. Maybe talk a little bit about what, what you've seen in the terms of the evolution of structuring private, private investing efforts along with their family offices. Sure. I think that it is, certainly as you alluded to, Richard, there's, there's many alternatives. And I think each alternative uh, that you mentioned has to be considered uh, primarily across maybe three different components. Uh, the first component is cost, uh, which I know all family offices are, are concerned about. The second of which we've talked about here is just time. How much time and effort do you want to put into this? And then the last thing is sort of control. And I think all of those components uh, uh, lead into what's the overall risk uh, you as an investor are, are willing to uh, uh, to take on. And if you think about the spectrum of options and you layer in those three, um, those three components, you think about, on the one hand, you could just invest in a private equity fund where you don't have control. Um, that there's certainly cost that's there. Uh, there's certainly some time that's there. Uh, but you follow that spectrum of options from private equity fund commitment to uh, co-investment next to private equity fund 
to uh, uh, maybe investing with an independent sponsor, uh, doing a club deal, uh, investing alongside of, a, of, of, of another lead family office where maybe you're, you're not an equal partner, but you're, you're a more passive partner. And then all the way to the other end where you are making direct control investments uh, where it's, you have full control, you have a lot of cost, um, and you, you have to spend a lot of time. And I think over the last 11 years, as we've seen uh, families evolve, there's, there's a clear pattern that has emerged uh, in the world of, of direct family capital. And that's, that's an evolution that we've seen almost every family travel down at different, different times uh, over, that, over that period. But they all tend to go through the same, uh, the same uh, we would sort of say, five phases. And, and the first phase is really, do you want to make versus buy? Do you want to just simply build an in-house team or would you rather just outsource the investment on direct family capital to a private equity fund or to an investment, uh, to an independent sponsor? Um, how do you think about going through that? The second is, and I mentioned this before, is um, overcoming the internal tug of war as, as we, would, we would think of it. And that is uh, appropriately aligning your governance, your staffing, your strategy, the decision-making, really getting everybody on the same page. And that takes time. And usually that is um, that phase of people's evolution is around the same time where they, they move to hire an individual. Um, and so they, that's the dip their toe in the water phase. And so most families go through that and they learn from that. Maybe they get a deal done. Maybe they get two deals done. And now they're, in, they're into a, a, a third phase where they're trying to learn how to multitask. They're trying to learn how to uh, how to source deals, how to diligence them, how to manage them, how to manage their team, how to properly incentivize the team. Do they now maybe starting to get in management fees from their portfolio companies? Do they build out a team of more individuals? Um, and they ultimately make some of those decisions internally to continue to build out uh, uh, the um, uh, their, their capability set, frankly. And then they get to phase four. And now all of a sudden they've got a portfolio of companies uh, they're tapped out of capital. Uh, they sort of run to the point where enough is enough, and they, they recognize that um, they, as a family, and their team uh, may start to have disconnect. For example, the team may be getting compensated based on deals that they do and carried interest, and if the family says, hey, we're tapped out, we have no more capital to deploy, um, what, what are we going to do? Well, the next logical um, uh, phase in, in that evolution is, um, you, you have to, if you want to continue in this business, you, you have to support the team. You have to support your portfolio companies, and in all likelihood, that means you got to bring in third-party capital. And, and we've seen uh, folks uh, do this in the last several years. You've seen uh, MSD do this. You've seen the Prisco Group do this. Uh, you ourselves uh, have done this. Uh, but that's a natural evolution in this model of direct investing, uh, whereby. Uh, each of these firms and many others are uh, have found their way, have evolved over time through going through all of those phases in a similar way, maybe over a different time period, some faster than others, but ultimately that's where you get. And I think a lot of families need to think about that evolution because just the sheer cost of putting in a, a team of three people, a very simple starter team of three people, it costs you more than a million dollars. And in many instances, the direct uh, family capital uh, group that you put together is going to far exceed the cost of what the rest of your office might cost you because sure. the, the people and the talent are, 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 really, um, uh, are really expensive because of their backgrounds and the jobs that they're leaving to come to do this for you. And so being, being uh, conscious of what that evolution looks like um, if we're starting to see some of that over the last couple of years now where some families have reached, uh, reached their capacity of capital and made decisions, and we've seen those such as Pritzker and MSD uh, bring in other capital, we've seen others just begin to slowly wind down their activity set uh, because they realize, geez, I've got to become a registered investment advisor. I've got, you know, I've got all sorts of, uh, of compliance things that I deal with. I've got disclosure issues. Um, all of those things, um, a family needs to go eyes wide open 
because most families, if they go down this process, will eventually get to the point where they are capacity constrained by people and capacity constrained by capital. Got it. No, very helpful. Um, we have about 10 minutes left and we are getting some questions. So I'll start picking up some questions that folks have sent in. Uh, maybe I'll start here and, and this one touches upon uh, 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 topics you brought before. Maybe Mark, you can take this. You know, periods of extreme dislocation and stress typically lead to unique investment opportunities. Are there any particular industries that you're focusing on or you're seeing people focus on coming out of the pandemic? One, and I guess two, another question that's related, and maybe both of you can touch on this. Um, do you believe that the life science, med tech, or biotech area is going to be more interesting post-COVID-19? Um, it's been a you know, challenging space directly because of the specialized expertise. So do you think folks are focused there, or is it going to be mostly in partnership with, with other private equity firms? Um, so uh, take, taking that, that first piece first, so what, what, what's interesting today? So I, I think right now when you look at the market and, and you try to figure out where are we, um, you know, a lot of people will say <laughs> we're halfway into something. Some people will say, okay, maybe we're leveling off. The, the, the best investment opportunities come still from the relative risk return. And so part of this goes back to risk appetite. You know, there, if for, for a higher risk appetite, taking a look at a world where consumer spend is going to be changing and where you're getting a lot of people coming out of the market, there are going to be buying opportunities, especially at the kind of the regional level where consumer-focused businesses, whether, you know, restaurants or, you know, specialty retail or uh, leisure and entertainment, things that folks will ultimately end up coming back to, those, those assets can be had relatively cheap. The ITP can be had relatively cheap. I put that on the caveat that you, you have to manage through the real estate exposure as well, because that's certainly something in this cycle that uh, I'm sure you're all very keenly focused on as am I. Um, you know, those adjustments haven't necessarily happened yet, but from a dislocation perspective, this has been the continued bifurcation of kind of consumer spend. And in, in, in the U.S., consumer spend is obviously such a huge part of the economy. Um, those are going to be where the opportunities are for, for winners to, to kind of emerge from this. So I think if you're looking there, it's definitely an interesting space. Um, a lot of other sectors, I think you're seeing, you know, healthcare otherwise. The valuations are obviously down on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, things are still expensive. So, um, you know, the question becomes, on, on if you're paying a growth multiple for things today, um, what do you think about that growth? So, from where I'm sitting, I'm, I'm focused more on where the distress and where the, you know, the, the deep value plays are, as opposed to the relative, you know, opportunity strategies, because I think the relative plays will be there through the cycle. Got it. On the on the uh, biotech side, it's interesting that that's a question because <laughs> we've spent a lot of time on this recently. You know, the reality is that's a sector that seems relatively agnostic to what's happening macro, because so much of the you know so much of it is venture style risk that there's going to be businesses today where they're going to make just as big of you know just just as much money as they would have made at the top of a bull market because it's kind of a, a binary outcome on the value creation. So. There, you know, we, we used to have a saying, which is try not to be a tourist in a place that's hard to understand. And my, my general view is if, if you need a PhD to be competent in an area, yeah. I personally don't have one. I'm stuck on an MBA, so I stay. <laughs> um, but that is an area where I think partnering or finding the right, um, you know, fund structure can, can lead to better results. Because there are folks out there that have the expertise and honestly take enough shots on goals to get that portfolio effect. Um, with anything that's got that development or that R&D risk to it, it's, it's hard to be, um, it's hard to take rifle shot approach and, and feel good about it just because of the way that it, the return dispersions work. Makes sense. Or do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, on any of those topics? Yeah, I would just add one thing from a uh, uh, an area that we're spending a lot of time on um, is in the defense and intelligence space. This is an area that seems to, at least from a public standpoint, uh, held up quite well. Um, we, we have uh, a thesis in the space that we've been executing against for the last three years um, and, and deployed a bunch of capital across those companies and, and in our um, in, in, in the fund that we're in the process of launching our uh, one of our industries of focus is in the defense and intelligence space and, and that is an area where I think is um, not that nothing's immune to a crisis but certainly when you think out over the next 10 years uh, the U.S. is going to continue to need uh, national security, and some would argue maybe differentially 
an increased national security going forward as we look at uh, things such as the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the issues, uh, the different issues that it has caused on our national security apparatus and our national security uh, policy going forward. And so that, that is an area where uh, we haven't seen a whole lot change in pricing. However, um, it, it is an area of, um, uh, of interest. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, here we've been seeing that as well and also increased interest in cybersecurity. And I think this has thrown that into stark relief given the remote working and kind of things like this, doing work uh, from home and, and WebEx and, and, and the like. So that's, that's really helpful. Another question that came through, when do you choose to pivot on a focus strategy? Any institution that thinks they'll be doing the same thing for 50 years will be obsolete. Um, or do you have any thoughts on that uh, having evolved and kind of expanded into different industries and, and when it's when is the right time and when do you have the right resources to make that change? Sure. So I, I think for us, we tend to be more thesis driven uh, around the areas that we look at. I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, third party logistics is an area that we uh, have made an investment. It's an area we continue to look at. It's an, it's an, it's an area right now that um, amazingly enough is, is, um, is uh, uh, in, in, in a uh, unique environment given the COVID-19 situation. But over the course of last year, uh, the 3PL space has been in a bit of an industry recession, uh, but it's had a resurgence here uh, as all of us continue to, um, to, to buy as if it's Christmas time um, in the last uh, 60 days. But that's, a, that's a, a thesis, and I use it as an example that um, it's a strong thesis because of the, the size of the marketplace, uh, the increased demands uh, going into 3PL as it relates to how, how we all and the world buys goods and move, moves goods. Uh, across the world, and I think for us, it's a thesis that when we when we entered uh, our investment about a little over five years ago, um, a couple years after that, uh, the market began to change. It's continued to change and adapt, um, and we look at that as an area where we could be in in that industry for a very long time, uh, ten plus years, and it's a it's a thesis that uh, holds true um, over that time period. But there are times in which you actually want to be a buyer and times you want to be a seller. And so we, we tend to look at theses that can endure the test of time. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you're always a buyer at every day of the year over that period of time, because there may be some times where you want to be that seller. Uh, and so we, we tend to take a much longer view on things and, uh, and pay attention to when there are changes, uh, either uh, structural or otherwise, within certain industries where we can pick and choose the time in which we may want to reevaluate that thesis and re-enter the marketplace. Um, that's one of the things that we've been looking at in the last year in the logistics space where there might be some opportunities given where it has been uh, and certainly where it is now to, to, to find another opportunity to invest in the space. Yep, makes sense. Uh, here's another question. This one might be tricky. It might be the, the magic bullet for, for Mark and Ward. How do you turn families with plenty of capital from being shoppers of private deals to creating a sense of urgency to invest in private deals? And, and also, how do you overcome uh, the objection of families not wanting to invest in a blind pool fund versus direct deals? I don't know if any of you have a particular insight into that, having worked with families. I think Ward's got a little bit more experience than I do on this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, Mark. Uh, Ward, yeah, yeah, it's, I, think it's, I think it's tricky to do this, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, let me just make sure I repeat the question, um, Richard, just so I, I understood. The last part of that question was, how do you overcome the challenges uh, as a family office to um, investing in a fund? Is that is that the question? Uh, yeah, I think it, the second part is, is folks looking at a pool fund versus really want to take control whether they're ready or not, right? And I guess the, the previous one is, to your point, there are a lot of folks who are shopping, but they actually never execute on deals. And, and I think that's a challenge, but that may be one insurmountable. It's very family specific, but, but I think those are the two points. Yeah, I think it, it is a challenge. Um, it's a big challenge. And, and we've, we've seen that as we come into market raising, uh, raising capital for one of our direct investments and, and even and now as, as raising capital as a fund, on the, on the direct investment side, I think that it goes back to some of the things that, that Mark alluded to uh, earlier, which is really you know, ha having your having your thesis helps you have conviction, and having that conviction helps you align 
um, uh, effectively your stakeholders. And, and the, that's not only all family members and people who work in the office, but are also part of the deal team. And, and having that ability to um, not just be a shopper, but to be prepared to, to make those investments. I mean, obviously, you, you as a family spent significant time thinking about allocating capital to this space. And, and I, I've always said that families, uh, families uh, do, uh, uh, do, do one thing very lightly, and that is spend their own money. Families hate to spend their own money. We all do. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, when you build out a team uh, to, to be in the direct private capital space, you have to spend your own money at first until you build a big enough team and you have enough companies to support that team. And so it's, it's, it shouldn't, um, uh, you, you need to have that conviction as a family that you're willing to do that. If you're not, then just outsource. And I think uh, that, that make versus buy that I mentioned earlier is an, is an important component. And I think that um, as you, as you think about allocating capital to a, uh, to a private equity fund, um, I think your, um, uh, your ability, the, the difference in, in thinking about the choice that you have between doing it internally and doing it as a fund, um, at, at the end of the day, what we, what we all think of of, invest, of, of, of paying fees and carry of 2% and 20 to a fund vehicle, to, to, to a blind pool uh, vehicle versus the cost of doing it your own, unless you're really, really large, and I'm talking about maybe $250 million of capital to just direct private equity investments, it's really hard to save money at the yeah. end of the day because of all the things required um, and, and that many people don't even think of. And I mentioned being a registered investment advisor. Um, that um, the, the, it's, it's pretty hard to get to a point where you can say, uh, I'm going to save money by going direct if I'm only going to deploy $50 million or $100 million. Um, it, it's it's very hard to to find that trade off, and 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 I can assure you, uh, having gone through the pain and agony of becoming a registered investment advisor and doing all those things, um, it, it is a challenge to it. And so you look at should I um, should I make a fund commitment? And if you make a fund commitment, there are lots of funds out there. There's uh, there's a fund for every one of your needs, right? There's a fund to look at life science and med tech. There's funds to look at Brazil. There's funds. You could, you, could, you could go almost anywhere. But if you really want to be engaged and you want to be um, less, you want to be more active than passive, uh, then you might, you, it might behoove you to find a fund where you can create a longer term, uh, more intimate relationship with that fund, with those managers, with the people on those teams that think the way you do, and that you can lend your your advice, your counsel, your knowledge to help support them, to lend your deal flow. Frankly, you'd benefit from that as an investor. And I think that's overlooked by a lot of families who say, boy, you know, how am I going to pick up the phone and call that fund manager and talk to them? Pick up the phone. You're you're an LP. You have a right to pick up the phone, understand the portfolio, and be willing to contribute. And I think that contribution really comes in the form of of, uh, your um, your intellectual capabilities, your background, your experience, your relationships, all of those things uh, that you can leverage, uh, your industry experience can be leveraged and provided to a fund, which is only going to help you and everybody else achieve higher quality returns. Yeah. I, I, would, I would actually echo that because one thing that I think is also important is, you know, because, because of the, you know, the, the popularity and the propagation of, you know, family offices here in the last five to 10 years, you know, there are a lot of folks who haven't started one yet that look at it and say, you know, hey, I need to snap my fingers and have 10 people and be in 12 asset classes and be, you know, kind of everything to everyone. So a lot of this also has to do with, you know, most families started and created a lot of wealth through one business, right? So the concentration risk was off the charts. And now at this point, if you're starting a family office, you're probably now pivoting towards more uh, of a diversified approach towards risk. And like any asset allocator or, or asset manager, you, you know, when you're doing different things, you usually start by seeing something to see how it works. So it might very well be that you take five or 10% of the capital and say, let's go buy something that we understand. And maybe we partner with somebody that we know to do it and we'll see how that goes. And if that works, maybe we like this, you know, better than we thought. You know, there's nothing wrong with lugging into these things because, you know, like, like any good trade, 
just jumping in, you got to have a lot of conviction. If the conviction's not quite there yet, um, there's ways to to risk adjust by by taking it slow. So th there's absolutely nothing wrong with that approach, and you know people had a lot of success, I think, by doing that. Just you know, leg into it slowly, and um, you know, Ward, Ward mentioned the Priskers previously, you know, or, or MSD. They they didn't start as you know 200 person conglomerates of investors. Yep. They started much smaller than and worked they were worked their way up. Great point. Great point. No, that's really helpful. Uh, well, we're running a little late, but you know, a lot to talk about in this space, and we really appreciate you both, Ward and Mark, for taking the time. Really thoughtful insights, and um, uh, I know we can continue talking on this for, for plenty more time, but for the folks on the call, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, either Mark or Ward or have any other questions, please feel free to send us an email at familyoffice at bostonprivate.com, again, familyoffice at bostonprivate.com, and we, we can make those connections or answer any additional questions that we didn't get to in the call. And um, also recommend that you check out our website where you can find uh, numerous resources, sign up for our newsletter, and um, get, get other information. And the website is bostonprivate.com slash familyoffice, bostonprivate.com slash familyoffice. Well, that commercial aside, again, thank you so much, Mark and Ward, um, for, for joining us and taking the time and, and for the audience for taking the time out of your day. Um, we hope you all stay safe and, uh, and healthy in this environment and hope to hear from you guys soon. Take care.